ask that we turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6. And we are going to revise this passage. And we'll be looking this morning not at verses 1 through 12, but that verses 1 through 8. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washing the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Having been saved by the grace of God, the question is, can a true believer in Christ, eventually come to that place where he or she forfeits that salvation. Here in our text, we have one of the most hotly debated passages of Scripture. For some, this passage is most troubling because it seems to suggest that a believer in Christ could at some juncture lose his or her salvation. And I think right away you would pick up with the direction I'm headed. Um, now, so as not to complicate matters, we want to make it clear from the very outset that based on the clear teaching of the Word of God, based on what Scripture in many places declare in the most patent and clear manner, that those whom God saves by His grace... He saves for keeps. He saves for keeps. In fact, our Lord Jesus affirmed this in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, when he declared, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He goes on to say, My father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no man can snatch them out of my hand. John 6, 39, 
and 40, Jesus again is speaking there. He says, and this is the will of him who has sent me that I should lose nothing. God's will is that the Lord Jesus should lose nothing, he says, of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. As such, he could, near the end of his ministry, pray in addressing his Father, he could pray like this, While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. John 6 and verse 39. In fact, right in this very epistle, even in this very chapter, if you'll notice, verses 13 through 20 underscore the idea that believers in Christ are eternally saved. But later on, the writer will say in chapter 7 and verse 25 that Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And I'm not suggesting that this is going to settle the difficulty of the passage. We want to proceed through this portion this morning and take the text as it comes and in studying this passage, the first thing we'll consider is the call proposed. The call proposed. We see that in verses 1 to 3. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And of instruction about washing and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. The call proposed by the writer is one in which he impresses on his readers the need to move on and keep moving on in their Christian development. He's urging them to move past the rudimentary elementary teachings about Christ to go on to more deeper to deeper, more substantive truths as regards the glories of his person and redemptive work, in particular that of his present high priestly ministry. There to go on to maturity, he says in verse 1, and that verb translated go is from a root word which means to bring, bear, or carry. The verb is in the present tense, which denotes ongoing continuous action. And what this implies is this, that as Christians, you and I never get to that place where we cease growing. We always are growing on this side eternity. We are to be constantly being carried along in our walk with the Lord. It reminds us of what the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, his own testimony. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And the next thing we notice about this command, in fact, this verb, go, is that the, the instruction to go on to maturity of note is that the verb go is in the passive voice, which means that the action is being done on the subject, namely these Jewish readers. So that the sense of this 
construction, the sense of this exhortation, literally the writer is saying this, let us be continually brought to maturity or let us be born along or carried along to maturity. If you ask what is the implication of that construction, let us continually be carried along, be born along to maturity. The implication is this, that just as it is with our salvation, our growth, our maturity in grace is all dependent on the power, enabling power and grace of God. It tells us that unless God in grace comes alongside us, bears us along, we never make it in our Christian walk, in our Christian development. No wonder it is, if you look at verse 3, no wonder it is that in verse 3, the writer bases this matter of progressing in maturity on what? The will of God. Here's what he says. This will we do if God permits. Our growth in grace is very much related to the will of God, as is our salvation. So the call to the right, the call the writer proposes to the Hebrew Christians, that is one in which they are urged to constantly move forward toward maturity in the faith by the will of God. Now to do so, they are instructed by the writer to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. They are to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. The literal rendering there is the beginning word or teaching concerning Christ. And the question is, to what exactly is the writer referring? What does he mean when he says to them that they are to leave the beginning word or teaching concerning Christ? Is he referring, A, to the basic doctrines of the Christian faith as we understand them in the New Testament, or is he referring to the introductory beginning teachings found in the Old Testament as set forth in the various rituals, types, and shadows there in the Old Testament? Or is he referring to both? And one of the things we need to remind ourselves as we read the epistle to the Hebrews, as we read in context, we want to bear in mind the people to whom he was addressing, the people to whom the writer was addressing himself. He was writing to Jewish believers. And with the understanding that the writer is addressing Jewish Christians, Kenneth Weiss argues, and I quote, he says this, the phrase, the beginning word of the Christ, refers to that teaching concerning him which is first presented in the Bible. The truth concerning his person and work found in the symbolism of the Levitical sacrifices, the tabernacle, priesthood, and offerings all speak of him in his person and work, end quote. Now, according to Wiest, it is these foundational teachings of the Old Testament that his readers are to leave behind. That they are to leave and go on to maturity. I'm not sure that we can conclude that dogmatically. I believe it is better to take the position that he is referring to both. He is suggesting that they are to leave the basic foundational doctrines of the New Testament, such as the Apostle Paul and Peter would, would, would have expounded, 
And as well, he's talking about leaving behind those beginning elementary introductory teachings concerning Christ found in the Old Testament in the form of sacrifices, types, shadows, the Old Testament priesthood, the temple, and so on and so forth. For we, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11 supports the idea that in verse 1, in fact, before I get to that, um, when, according to Weiss, when the writer speaks of leaving these things and going on to maturity. Maturity in this context is, it means the finished sacrificial work of Christ on the cross and his present high priestly ministry on which they are to focus their faith in Christ. They are to focus their faith on the finished work of Christ on the cross. They were to leave behind the elementary Old Testament pointers to Christ, those elementary beginning word or teaching of Christ. And to support that idea, he cites, and I think this is marvelous, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11, he is demonstrating there that the writer is using the word maturity or perfection to mean the perfect completed work of Christ. Here's what Hebrews 7 and verse 11 says. Now if perfection, that same word translates maturity, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So perfection there, maturity there, we see clearly is associated with the finished perfect work of Christ on the cross. His perfect work of redemption. Note also Hebrews chapter 7 verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing, here it comes, perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That better hope, of course, would be the perfected, finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is with this understanding, then, that we see the writer calling on these Jewish readers, quote, to abandon the type for the reality, that which is incomplete for that which is complete. Now, once again, I want to suggest that we can't be certain that it is entirely the situation in which a writer is telling them to give up the the, the beginning word concerning Christ as found in the types and shadows. We can't say it's exclusively that. We believe also, based on the general context of the book and also the wider context of Scripture, that it will include basic Christian doctrines developed in the New Testament. In other words, Don't stay at the elementary stage of truth, is what he's saying. Now, in being told to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, or more literally, the beginning word about the Christ, they're instructed not to lay again a foundation. Not to lay again the foundational elements of conversion. He cites six such foundational elements which appear to be in pairs. We see that in verses 1 and 2. And each pair, respectively, dealing with what could be considered to be the commencement of the Christian life, 
the continuance of the Christian life and the conclusion of the Christian life. The first two are twins, repentance and faith. Those would speak of the commencement of the Christian life. These are imperatives. These are absolute necessities as regards true saving conversion. What are they all about? Repentance and faith. Well, representing the negative side of conversion, repentance, we know, is essentially what? A change of mind with respect to God, with respect to oneself, and with respect to sin. When a person repents, a change occurs, or we would say changes occur, with respect to who God is, with respect to who one is, and with respect to what sin is. It is that change of mind whereby one sees the heinousness, the gravity of one's sins before God, and hence turns from them. It is that change of mind whereby one sees the woeful deficiency of one's self-righteousness and discards them, coming to see such righteousness as dead works. And what are dead works? Dead works? The writer uses that expression. Dead works would be works that proceed from a dead, sinful condition. As described in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, alienated from the life of God. Hence, works of righteousness produced from an unsaved person are necessarily dead works. We need to repent of those, the writer is suggesting, works that are not the fruit of the life-giving spirit of God. So that's the negative side of conversion, repentance. It is this turn-around situation, about turn, whereby one comes face-to-face with the reality of sin, with the reality of what, who one is before God, who God is, and what sin really is. Now, faith is a positive side of conversion, Faith represents the starting point, we would say, of a right relationship with God because as the word of God tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God for the one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In faith, one comes to God, one comes to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. And so at its basic level, true saving conversion, we would say, based on Acts chapter 20, verse 21, Paul's own language, Paul will speak of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the found one foundational element, or rather this pair of foundational elements of the Christian life, repentance and faith. The writer is saying, yes, those are good, but we must go on from these. Don't keep going over and over and over over old sins. Don't keep looking to Jesus beginning again as though you want to accept him, receive him once again as Savior. That foundation has been laid, hence it is time to move on. Yes, there's a sense in which, as Christians, we are to be always repenting. We never give up repenting. But it's not a situation where we are trying to get saved again. It is the repentance of sanctification. Yes, we never get to the place where we stop having faith. We always have to be looking to Jesus. We always have to be trusting him. But it is not as though we are coming again to him to be saved all over
The next two foundational elements the readers are instructed to leave are instructions about washings and the laying on of hands. These we could describe as the continuation of the Christian life. Remember, again, we have to understand the context. This was a Jewish audience. The word washings, notice it is plural, may also be rendered baptism. And the washings or baptism is plural. Why? Because in the context of these Jewish Christians of that day, there were three kinds of baptism. There was Jewish proselyte baptism. When a person became a Jew, that person would be baptized. There was the baptism of John. You remember the baptism of John? And of course, Christian believers' baptism. The laying on of hands, we know, was a practice in the beginning stages of the church. This seems to have been associated with the reception of the Holy Spirit, as in Acts chapter 8, verse 15, verse 18, as well as Acts chapter 19 and verse 5. Now, let's backtrack here a little. If, as Kenneth Weist argues that the, 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 the writer was addressing these Jewish Christians, telling them to leave behind the beginning stages, the beginning word about Christ, the types, the shadows, then the laying on of hands here may have reference to the act of the worshiper in the Old Testament when in offering their sacrifices, they would what? Lay their hands on a sacrifice. And hence, that would be a hint, that indeed would be a hint that some of his readers were tempted to go back to the temple to offer sacrifices. The same could be said of the washings mentioned in verse 2 that they were connected with the Levitical rituals. Remember, they had to wash at the laver before they entered the tabernacle. And evident that the washings he's calling them here to leave behind would have been those Old Testament washings. Again, we can't be sure. Is he talking about baptism specifically here or is he referring to a mixture of Christian baptism and the washings of the Old Testament that they are to leave behind? And then the next two foundational elements these readers were told not to lay again as a foundation would be teachings concerning the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. These speak of the conclusion of the Christian life. So if repentance and faith speak of the com commencement of the Christian life, the beginning of the Christian life, and the other two we considered earlier had to do with the the continuance of the Christian life, then these teachings concerning resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment concern the conclusion of the Christian life. There are major doctrines to which every saved, converted person would have been exposed. Indeed, these end-time realities are the backdrop uh, against which salvation through Christ becomes a matter of urgent necessity. These are truths that must be told. These are truths that must be heard by those who come under the sound of the gospel. And let me say here, as a, by way of reminder, the word of God teaches, the fact is, every woman, every boy, every girl will someday stand before God 
in judgment, and that is an appointment that one cannot evade, that one cannot escape. You, my friends, I am going to stand before God in judgment. Those who have died are going to be raised. And what will be most important at that time is the question as to what you have done with Christ. A songwriter says, Jesus is standing in judgment Pilate, in Pilate's judgment hall. And he concludes by saying, someday your soul will be saying, what will he do with me? What will you do with Jesus? But someday he'll be saying, what will he do with me? Are you prepared for the judgment? Are you on right terms with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, that's what matters in the very end. We are going to stand before God and we must give an account to him someday. But here the writer is saying to his readers that these and other related foundational doctrines must be left. They are to move on. So here in verses 1 to 3, we have then the call proposed. It's a call to move on to deeper stuff. Now secondly, we have the caution sounded. The caution sounded. And that we find in verses 4 through 6. The caution sounded verses 4 through 6. And here the writer states why it is so critical, why it is so vital, why it is so urgent for his readers to leave the rudimentary teachings concerning Christ. Or if we want to be contextual related to the Jewish readers, why they are to leave the beginning word, the elementary teachings concerning Christ in the Old Testament, all the types, all the shadows, the temple, the rituals, and so on. Why is it so critical that his readers not go back to these foundational preparatory teachings about the Christ? And here's what he says beginning at verse 4. He says this, for it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. In these verses, the writer speaks of some who have had experiences of the power of the gospel. What would happen to them if they were to fall away and why it would be impossible to restore them again to repentance? First of all, as regards their experience of the gospel, they have once been enlightened, the writer says. And in the context of the epistle, the reference is to those Jews who had come into an enlightened understanding as to who Jesus is, the fact that he fulfills the Old Testament types and shadows, that he is the consummate perfect high priest, he is the perfect sacrifice, an understanding that 
really is not clearly stated in the Old Testament. And more so, they have come to an enlightened understanding that salvation is to be found only in him. He says they were enlightened. Their eyes were opened as to who Jesus is. They came to see clearly, not the shadow, but the substance. They came to see that Jesus was none other than the divine Son of God, that he was none other than the perfect high priest of God for sinners. Second, as regards your experience of the gospel, the writer speaks of those who have tasted of the heavenly gift. And the word tasted is used here figuratively for experience. You see, why is this important? Because in the discussion on this passage, there are some people who will say, well, these people referred to, they never actually experienced it fully. They only had a taste. But here's what, why this will not do, why we cannot bring that argument here, because it's the same word that is used in Matthew 16, verse 28, this same word translated taste that is used in Matthew 16, 28, where Jesus speaks of those who will not taste death until they see the coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom. Same word that's used. It means experience. It's a word that is used in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, where, he, where the word of God says Jesus tasted death for every man. So the writer is saying here that these people, they had an experience of the gospel, the power of the gospel, in which they were enlightened. Their eyes were opened as to who Jesus really is. They came to see him as the divine savior. They came to see him as surpassing the priesthood of the Old Testament, as surpassing the animal sacrifices. They came to see him as the perfect sacrifice, as the perfect high priest. Third, the writer speaks of those who have shared, that is, participated in the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word that's used there for shared is the same root word that occurs in chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, where the writer speaks of these Hebrew Christians as sharing in the heavenly calling. He says, holy brethren, partakers, sharers in the heavenly calling. Perhaps this participation in the Holy Spirit was a tasting of the heavenly gift referred to earlier. And then fourthly, as regards their experience of the gospel, the writer speaks of those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. They have tasted of the goodness of the word of God. In other words, having come under the enlightening influence of the Holy Spirit and the word of God... The Holy Spirit, in tandem with the Word of God, showed them Christ, and hence the Word of God became to them most sweet, most precious. And then notice, fifthly, as regards their experience of the gospel, the writer speaks of those who have tasted, and that word once again means what? Experience. They have experienced the powers of the ages to come. 
Then the question is, what is meant by the powers of the ages to come? What is meant by their tasting the powers of the ages to come? No doubt this refers to all the attesting signs and wonders and miracles whereby God bore witness to the truth of the gospel, the truth concerning Jesus as the perfect, all-sufficient Savior, which the first century readers heard from those who had been with Jesus. In fact, that's what the writer says in Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, that when he says, see that you don't neglect this salvation which was first announced, by the Lord, and then by those who heard him, God also bearing them signs, witness with signs and wonders and miracles of the Holy Spirit. The caution is then issued regarding the possibility of those with such experience of the power of the gospel falling away. Now, here's something that's very interesting, and, and I want for us to note this. The word falling away, the, the Greek word that's used there is prefixed by the particle para. And when a verb is prefixed with a, with, with a, with a particle, with a preposition, what is being done to the verb is it's that the verb is intensified, the action is intensified. So what is suggested here, if we were to interpret this, what is suggested here is the idea of not just a falling away, but an utter, complete falling away. That's what's conveyed by the, the power up before the verb. The verb is also a participle and is in the aorist tense, which suggests the decisiveness, the finality of the falling away. It emphasizes the decisiveness and finality of the falling away. In fact, these people have fallen away, period. That's the idea. So listen now. What the writer, therefore, has in view here is not simply a case of backsliding, but a serious case of outright apostasy, of outright abandonment of faith in Christ. And here we have a, a solemn, we have a solemn and sobering warning as to the peril, as to the great danger, the great danger there is of spiritual regression, of getting into a condition of apostasy. From such condition, the author says, it is impossible to renew one to repentance. Why is that so? This brings us to the third matter we find in our text, the case argued. So he proposes a call, the call proposed, and then now the case argued. Verses 6b through 8. As to why it is impossible to renew them to repentance, those who have fallen away, those who have utterly fallen away, the writer presents two arguments. The one is based on a spiritual reality. The other is based on illustrations from nature. First, we look at the argument based on a spiritual reality. And the argument that's based on spiritual reality runs like this. It is impossible, the writer says, to restore those who have fallen away, that is, apostatized, from Christ. Why? Here's the explanation he gives. Since 
They are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The idea here is this. Here were Christians who, here were people whose eyes were open to the reality of who Jesus is. They saw clearly that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament types, all the Old Testament shadows, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices. They saw that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect high priest. They saw on top of that that he was the divine son of God. And yet in the face of persecution, pressure, They veered toward the temple. In fact, some of them might even have gone back. Renouncing faith in Christ. Renouncing the Son of God. And the writer is saying here, it's impossible to restore them. Why? Because they are once again crucifying Christ all over. They are bringing him to open shame. Now, here's the second argument he uses. And as I said to you, it's not an easy solution, but we're getting there. Second argument the writer uses as to why it's impossible to restore them, he uses illustrations from nature. Verses 7 and 8, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burnt. Now, in the context of the discussion, these Jewish readers would have well understood the point of this illustration. As hearers of the gospel of Christ, they were the land upon which the rain of the gospel fell. Resulting either in a harvest, a fruitful harvest, that is faith in Christ unto salvation, or a return to the Levitical system, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, producing what is tantamount to thorns and thistles. And what the writer is saying here is this, that to decidedly, to decidedly return to that old imperfect system and thereby fall away from Christ would be a situation in which, as suggested in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, they have hardened their hearts to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Later he's going to talk about doing despite to the Spirit of grace, trampling upon the blood of Christ, with which he was sanctified as, a holy, as an unholy thing. Hence the impossibility of renewing such defectors, such apostates, to repentance. Let me say this, that the application here extends not just to Jewish readers, but to Gentiles, you and me. But right away, this raises a problem. (laughs) This raises a problem. The passage raises a problem. The passage as it is before us raises a problem. 
Because here's what the problem is. All the experiences the writer cites, all the experiences he cites, as, have, as those people who fell away had, what were those experiences? They were enlightened. That's the language of conversion. They shared in the Holy Spirit. That's the language of conversion. They tasted of the heavenly gift. That's the language of conversion. They felt and knew the powers of the ages to come. All of these things smack of what appears to have been an experience of genuine salvation. And for some, the question becomes, doesn't this prove that one who was saved could, at some point, jettison, abandon, cast off faith in Christ, fall away, and hence be lost? The question then is, how do we resolve what appears from verses 4 to 8 to be a contradiction to the doctrine of eternal security? And unfortunately, we're not going to get to answer that this morning. We're going to come back to this next week because what we have to resolve this, right? Um, if, let me just say this, that if salvation could be lost, if one's salvation could be lost, then Jesus was not a perfect Savior. If salvation can be lost, then Jesus is not a perfect Savior. Because those whom he saves, he keeps to the very end. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing that he was called you, who has begun a good work in you, will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Could it be, here's, here's what I want to ask in closing, could it be, could it be, that what the writer is saying here in our text could, be apply, could apply to some even in our church. And we have to take what he says at face value. He talks about falling away. How do we explain that falling away and what does that falling away mean? What is the consequence of that falling away? Because here's the thing. Read some commentaries that you'll find that that falling away, you see, is it, the, the way it is treated is in a tame manner which is not faithful to the text. And I will begin to say this, that I will show you next time that this falling away is a falling away to condemnation, eternal condemnation. How does that happen? However, let me close by saying, true believers in Jesus Christ can never be lost. Can never be lost. What's the application of this message as we close this morning? You have listened to this message today, but you're not saved. You never trusted Christ as Savior. Then you need to start at the foundation of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot begin to talk about maturity until you lay the foundation, until the foundation has been laid. The question is, have you repented of your sins? Have you turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and in trust? Remember, you need him more than you think. If you're not saved, you need him more than your next breath. 
You're going to stand before him someday in judgment. You need to turn to the Lord Jesus, trusting him and him alone to save you. What was happening in the book of Hebrews, these, many of these Jewish Christians, they were looking back, looking back to Judaism, looking back to the types and shadows. They were taking their eyes off Christ. And Paul will say elsewhere that if you return to circumcision, if you return to the law, Christ will profit you nothing. You cut yourself off from Christ. It is Christ all the way. Without Christ, one is lost. Is your faith anchored on Christ? Is your focus on Christ? Or is it on something else? Is it on your baptism? Is it on your good works? Or is it solely and strictly on the Lord Jesus Christ? And only you can know that, my friends. You need to trust him. Judgment is coming. Judgment is sure to come. And let one last word, based on the tenor of this passage, there is such a thing as the hardening of the heart. Constant exposure to the word of God. Constantly hearing the word of God. Not acting upon it. Not acting in faith. Is fatal. And we need to heed what the writer is saying here in the book of Hebrews. So next time we come, we'll look at this whole matter of what it means to fall away. The consequences and how how is that related? How is that related? What context do we put that in? And just to make sure once again, a true believer cannot be lost. The question is, how can one then have all of the experiences that were mentioned related to salvation, appearing to be saved, and yet fall into perdition? We thank your Father for your word, your word. It's sobering. Your word is truth. Your word is also comforting. We thank you for Lord Jesus. We thank you that those who anchor faith in him, who look to him in faith and trust, will never be lost. We ask, Lord, that as we ponder these things, as we read and reflect on this passage we have looked at this morning, Grant that we would have holy fear and reverence with respect to our lives before you. May they be lives of gratitude for your saving grace. May they be lives of sobriety, realizing the need for us to walk soberly and righteously in this present world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.